welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder and creative director, respectively, of Mr. Smith Hair, David and Frida Rossetti's. A Glow Journal first, this is our first ever mother and son founder duo, and I can honestly say this was one of the most enjoyable recordings that I have sat down for in five seasons. Frida is an industry legend. She tells me that being a migrant to Australia, very few of her earliest memories are centered around beauty. She had no idea what she wanted to be when she grew up. She fell into hairdressing and she grew to love it over time. As that passion grew, so too did Frida's resume as she directed the hairstyling for shows at Australian and New York Fashion Weeks and worked internationally on shows for Prada, Chanel, Dior and Hermes, just to name a few. Her son David subsequently grew up in that salon environment and he found himself working in marketing and product development for a hair care brand following his studies. From there, David developed a balancing shampoo and accompanying conditioner with no real plans to turn those two products into a fully-fledged brand. Both David and Frida tell me that if I'd asked them eight years ago if they saw themselves working together, it would have been a hard no. However, two months after David's first two products went to market, they were featured in Esquire New York and then in GQ... Vogue, Harper's Bazaar and Wallpaper Magazine. International press led to a truly unexpected surge in consumer demand, so Frida left her business and started working full-time with David. That was 2015. Today, Mr Smith Haircare is available in 12 countries and what began as two products is now a brand with over 40 SKUs. In this conversation, Frida and David share whether or not it's possible to grow a business at the rate of Mr. Smith and maintain a balanced life. The advice anyone wanting to make it in the world of startups needs to hear. And some surprising stats around hairspray sales in Texas. We start every interview exactly the same way, so we're going to go right back to the very beginning. What are your earliest memories of beauty? David, perhaps we'll start with you, I imagine, given your mum's career. She would have played a part in those early beauty memories. Yeah, I think she has. I think it's um, – I probably owe her more than, than what I first assumed. And this actually came up yesterday. We'll, that we'll must be it. nice to hear. It is nice Don't to lie hear. to yourself. <laughs> So it was short. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was. No, no, no. Um, I remember actually as, as a young fella um, in my mum's salons mm-hmm. um, during the school holidays. So I think it was somewhat of a free, cheap labour. On the other hand, you're probably a bit overworked and understaffed. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember going in and just thinking, geez, I remember you would have your team meetings at 8.30. You'd kick off the day that way. And you'd work until your last client was probably at six. You were shuffling people in the door mm-hmm. and it was just flat out. And I think that was also when salons were were big and busy and pumping back then. And I remember just seeing the work that my mum put in, um, how many people were through the door and on chairs. And 
uh, I got a real appreciation for the hair care industry or, or especially my mum's work ethic at that point. Frida, your earliest beauty memory? Oh, I'm trying to think of... I don't, I don't really have any early memories of beauty. I think for me maybe it was going into a salon... Being migrants, it wasn't something that I grew up around beauty. It wasn't my mum never had a beauty routine. I had an older sister. The closest thing to a beauty routine was, you know, watching her put on a lipstick. Mm -hmm. And apart from that, it was as I got older buying Dolly magazine and that was where I got any idea about beauty. I was really oblivious to to anything beauty related, if that makes sense. It does. What did you want to be when you grew up? I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I no idea. So I'm not one of those people that says I was going to be a hairdresser. I was always I was always passionate about being a hairdresser. No, that's not uh, that wasn't me. I fell into hairdressing and um, didn't actually even like it. If I'm going to be honest, talk me through it. Um, look, I I was um, I I I think I. I did it at a very young age and it was really just I wasn't even 15 yet. I wanted to leave school for reasons I won't even go into but uh, I went into hairdressing and um, and I think by the – not I think but by the time I was 18 um, my parents um, helped me go into my own salon and even then I was doing something right. I think I made people feel good. I don't think I was that greater hairdresser I think it was just I had really good work ethic um but then I realized if I was going to do this I wanted to be the best and I wanted to to learn and um and that's where a whole lot of things changed and I evolved and we can talk about that later I guess I mean we may as well work through it chronologically so you've owned salons but then I know that you've also worked on and directed the hair for shows Australian Fashion Week, New York Fashion Weeks, you've worked... London, in, Paris. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's an unbelievable resume. How did that all come to be if you were to work through a timeline? Um, okay, so I was... Um, my first salon was at 18 and then I had about six salons during that whole my period of owning salons. Um, it wasn't until about 1999, I think... I entered a competition called L'Oreal Colour Trophy mm-hmm. and I won that. Uh, I won for the state which wow. meant I then had to go on and compete against all the other states and that's when I got introduced to professional photo shoots and I had to do a shoot. I remember um, with, was it Jackie Frank for, yep. for um, uh, Marie Claire? And it was that, that was a real sort of turning point in my career and, and that was when I realised that, oh my goodness, I'm actually part of the fashion industry. It's not just the hair industry but it's a fashion industry. And that's when, um, I mean, before that as well I'd invested in myself going overseas and, you know, going to Sassoon's and so I was always big on investing in my career but it was that aha moment that... Um, after doing that shoot for Marie Claire that I decided that this is what I wanted to do. So um, I guess after that I started um, doing more freelance work 
and then I got myself to New York shortly after that and I was really lucky where a wonderful man called Rodney Cutler opened the door for me and we're still great friends now. I saw him literally three weeks ago in New York and the week before that in LA, so we're still great friends. Um, he asked me if I'd like to assist him on some shows, which I did. Um, not long after that, uh, through another connection, I got myself to Milan, then I got myself to Paris, and I guess the rest is history. I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to have worked with um, Sam McKnight for about 15 yeah. years now, and I'm on his um, core team. So I've worked with Sam and, um, you know, we've travelled the world. I've been lucky enough where I've travelled the world um, working on shows like, um, you know, Chanel, Fendi, uh, Vivian Westwood, Belmont, Therese is another favourite. Mm. Um, we've done shows in London like uh, Richard Quinn. I, I can't, they, they're endless. Um, so I do that every season. I've just come back from working with Sam uh, about 10 days ago actually. Oh, I've been back a week so it was about 10 days ago that I last worked with Sam. Um, and what I show did you do? What? Um, Foytier. Foytier. It was just Couture. I, um, just Couture. Well, we actually haven't <laughs> sure. spoken since you've We haven't really spoken. Been back. Oh, so we I was haven't like, what does really it do? nice off for a catch yeah. See, he probably doesn't even know. That's the thing. No, no, I, no, because no, I uh, someone asked me from America, oh, and, right. and I had no idea. Foytier, Foytier, which is another fabulous, and it's been nice to watch the way that's evolved as well. So, yeah, so I, I go. I go for spring, summer, autumn, winter, I go for men's, I go for couture and then cruise is usually mm. around December. So I don't always get to go to cruise. It just depends on what's happening here. But if I can, I definitely like to head over. That link between beauty and fashion is so interesting to me, in particular the way that an entire creative team comes together to do a head-to-toe look when you're directing a show, how does that process work for you? Is the designer coming to you and saying, this is the look I've had in my head from the get-go, execute it? Are you looking at what's going to be shown and saying, okay, this is what I think might work? Is it a bit of both? How does that process go for you? It works It's it works differently with different designers and I think often the younger designers that are showing for the first, second or third time, they're the ones that have a, a really... A lot of the times they have a real vision for what they want because they've worked on this collection mm. for such a long time. So they can be a lot more specific, whereas when you work with a brand over a period of time, they tend to trust you and it becomes more collaborative. Um, however, I think uh, something that I always keep in mind when I'm directing a show, it's not my show, mm. it's the designer and the designer has been working on this and... Um, you know, it's up to myself if I'm directing the show to see his vision. I will always be very honest and very uh, direct with my opinion on things but I'm never, um, you know, I'm there to make, uh, to complete what he's been, he or she have been working on for, for such a long time. And um, so I always say that to our team when, when we've got, if I've got new people, I always say so. So if, you know, if you're asked to change something, don't take it personally. This is because sometimes the designer may have a last-minute change of idea. We've been in lineup where the designer, we've had the hair down, all of a sudden the designer has said, okay, pull the hair back into a ponytail and you'll, you'll be on a chair and you'll be, you know, tying off ponytails, 
you know, there's so many. You can change looks right up until they walk out on uh, onto the catwalk. You touched on work ethic. What other lessons did you pick up in the early days of your career that you find you're still applying to your work now? Um, something for me that I I feel I'm always very, very, very respectful of who I'm working with, mm-hmm. who I'm working for. And um, to me that's really important to just always remember it's not about me but I'm here to... I'm part of the big picture and I always work really hard. If I'm... I remember being um, in New York and it was 11am and I had a phone call and someone said to me, can you go and assist on a show at 4am? And um, I said, yep, I can do it. At the time I was thinking, what am I thinking? But I knew... (laughs) Uh, it was with someone I'd never worked with before. It was um, Guido who is another like there's Sam McKnight and Guido and I'll never forget. Um, I thought, yep, I'll do it. And I, it was it was for Mark Jacobs and it was fantastic. And wow. um, But that's what I mean. Like I'm always ready to roll up my sleeves and I will be there. And if I've told you I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. I'll be there early. I'll be organised. I'll be prepared. And um, I don't think... Everyone is like that. I think you're correct. <laughs> Unless you're 15 minutes early, you're late. Yeah, I, that's, mm. that's what I always say. On time is late. Yeah. And early is on time. As someone who's perpetually early, I yeah. <laughs> agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Now, David, if research serves me, you studied business and commerce at university before working in marketing and product development. Yeah. Perhaps coincidentally or perhaps not for a hair care brand. Yeah. When you were studying... What industry were you hoping or planning to land in post-studies? Oh, look, I think um, I was giggling when you, answer, uh, when you asked that because I reckon at the end of my, my degree I was just happy to be employed, if I'm <laughs> honest with you. Um, I probably wasn't the most, despite what I said before, I probably wasn't the most astute student. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, doing business and commerce for me was, I suppose, to... I didn't really want to pigeonhole myself or, or put yeah. myself in a corner. Um, so at the conclusion of that, um, I was just happy to find a job. Mm-hmm. I knew the industry. I probably fell into it easier than what I should have. Um, so it was it was quite an easy pathway for me in that regard. Mm. Um, and then that's when the hard work started because yeah. you see the work that everyone else puts in. Mm-hmm. You see what's required. And, and you realise that, you know, universities only or university and schooling is only so much and then that's where you've got to earn your keep. Yeah. And that's where you're actually accountable for your actions and what you say and you've actually got to present facts as opposed to, um, you know, your own take on something. Yeah. It's one thing to get a foot in the door but if you're not going to work your ass off then it's out pointless. that same door you go. At what point did either of you start thinking about creating a product? Frida, were you thinking there's a gap in your kit? David, were you noticing gaps in the market from like a product perspective? Frida's shaking Never. her Mum's head. Never, ever. <laughs> no. Okay, talk me through this. If you had have asked us eight years ago, Never. sorry to jump in. No, no, please. <laughs> there is no chance we would have been working Never. together. No. Zero. I'm Zero. still... 
That's so it was funny. Never, and still to today, it's still the it same. It was a shock. Yeah. yeah. It was never in my train of thought ever. Never. Okay, so how did it happen? Um, I think once again somehow, look, innately it was somewhat in, in me. And, yeah. And I assume Frida too without speaking for you. Um, so innately it was probably there and it was a driving factor for a lot of the decisions behind uh, closed doors, so to speak. But um, I think uh, for me I saw somewhat of a gap in the market to actually create a product that was truly Australian. Yeah. Um, being family owned is something that I think is really at the core of the brand but also what we stand behind. We never want to create a product just for you know the bottom line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We truly believe and stand behind what we sell, what goes into the product, what goes into our bottles and hopefully how we make our consumers feel. Um, so when we started looking at what was in the market and I suppose what holes were there, we didn't necessarily see, you know, massive holes. We thought, okay, we're going to take advantage of this or we're going to jump right there um, because there are a lot of wonderful products in the market. But we just wanted a brand. We thought creating a brand that I suppose resonated with us would hopefully then resonate with a target demographic mm. that we identified um, and would make our brand successful and, and stand out. I think we we did that. I think we did that and I think we were surprised how quickly it took off. It took off. I don't think that was like I thought I came in helping my son um, by creating, you know, a beautiful image and testing all the products. So where where um, that's where I came in. I was testing and then when it just took off and people saying when when's you know, the complete range coming out because David launched with a you know, a balancing shampoo and a balancing conditioner. Right. This is what I wanted to ask about because it did yeah. just start as yeah. two products. It yes. was never intended to be a brand with as many skews as it no. has now. No, absolutely not. No. We um we started off and and we got ridden up in um in a squire in New York um pretty early on, like mm. probably two, three months in. And then from there it went that early. Yeah. yeah. It was really, really quick. And then um I think we had GQ in America. Um, there was Essence in America, and then it sort of dovetailed into Vogue and Harper's, and a couple of other publications here. Oh, we had wallpaper as oh well. My God. It was just like and, and it just it sort of just started the ball rolling really quickly. Yeah. And then from there, the next set of questions were, "Well, what's coming next?" Yeah. And we sort of went away and just went, "Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Now, now here's where we are." And I suppose it leads back into that point of where you said. Um, about like once you get your foot in the door, then the hard work starts. Yeah. I think the first two years mm. it just clicked and it boomed and it took off so quick. Mm. And then maybe from year, years three and four we hit that point again where it was like, oh, okay, now the hard work starts again. Yeah. And then I think now we're seeing it boom once yeah. again. Yeah. So it's funny how it ebbs and flows like that. Mm. And, um, yeah, sort of you get the groundswell you take advantage of it and then the work starts once again. To backtrack slightly, those the first products that you launched with, yeah. once you had the idea, where did you go from there? How did you find the right manufacturer? There are so many steps involved with bringing a product to life and subsequently yeah. a brand. So where did you start and how did that process look for you? I, um, I remember I went to a meeting with a gent um, here in Melbourne um, 
and I, I won't mention his name just because. Sure. But um, I somehow got towed into him and um, I thank my lucky stars because I wouldn't have taken a, a, a guess on me. Like I was going in there with an idea and I suppose a scribble on the page and he's such a well-established and um, industry and market and leader. And respected. And I don't know, like I to this day I still don't know what he saw or why he took our brand mm-hmm. on because he deals with, you know, only some of the biggest brands in the market. Yeah. And I'm still very grateful to this day to be dealing with, with that gent. And um and he still manufactures our products. Um and so I suppose having someone like that that truly had our back from the jump, um, then meant that I could ask those really dumb questions, so mm. to speak, that I was probably too scared to ask anyone else. Yeah. But the fact that he was developing, manufacturing um, and took help take our product to market, so to speak, um, we could then start that next round and next process and, you know, the idea of, okay, I, the serum was actually, even though it didn't launch until later in the piece, that was the third product that we, we started oh. developing and the mask. Um, yes, the mask. Because we thought, okay, cool. You know what? We've got a shampoo and conditioner, maybe a treatment, and that's yep. it. So at that point, we're like three products. That will be plenty. And so the mask came in and then it was it's people hysterical like. knowing how many products I know. Oh, people like, where's your dry shampoo and hairspray? And then it's like, okay, cool. Let's start getting, getting them done and so it's on and so process. forth. It's a process. And it's still a process and we still argue a lot oh, on, a, on a weekly. Those processes. Easy. It's exhausting. End of last week. We would have had a blow up about it. Probably did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop. Well, there's, I mean, there's upwards of 40 SKUs now. Mm-hmm. How does product development work on your end? Are you both constantly thinking about what might come next? Are you working off consumer demand saying, for example, where's this, where's that? Or is it a bit of both? Both. I'm going to yeah. say both. And the thing is, um, it's definitely both. But we may start with three or four things and one will finish the development because they may hit the mark immediately because mm-hmm. as soon as we, you know, we give them a brief, then I start putting it into the market and I start testing and, and other people start testing for me. And if that's ready to go and it's past stability, um, that may launch before the others that we've been testing for much longer. So mm-hmm. really it's not something that you can um, plan you can't plan when you're going to launch something because it never goes to, you know. Well, I, I think last year we only had one product launch, not because yeah. that's well, all we really wanted, but that's all that was ready. Yeah. And because it's our own money going into it, I'm not going to put something in that's going to flop. No. And actually that I think that's one thing that I'm really proud of. We've never discontinued a p- no, product. No, that's true. Yeah. We've always been. That's so rare. Yeah. Yeah, because it's. I mean, it's. It sounds like common sense to say, "Well, I'm not just going to launch a product for the sake no. of having a launch," oh, but no. not the norm. Yeah, uh, we've. Um, I mean, we've pulled product before it's gone to fill. Yep. Yeah. But we will never go out with a product that we don't 100 percent stand by, because it's going to come back twice as quick. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Again, backtrack, I'm sort of jumping all over the place because it's just like the story itself is so crazy how quickly Mm -hmm. the growth happened. When you realised how much press, I I say the brand, but these Mm -hmm. two products were getting so early on in the piece, 
what are the conversations that the two of you are happening uh, having? Sorry, when has it kind of occurred to you both that this is going to become something much bigger than what we'd planned? Well, that's when I decided I had to get out of my business. Yeah, <laughs> and work full time with David um, on Mr. Smith because I, I was al- I've always been involved. Yeah, but then I always had my own thing going. So that's when we started and just started. Um, and we started with um, a marketing assistant for you. Yeah. And um, I remember packing all the first orders. I remember packing all the first orders with you. Um, so really straight away, once once all that started happening, we just thought, okay, we need to knuckle down and get, um, you know, just get working on what I, we I, think. Yes. I think also we had at the start we're getting press and that was all great. Press is good, don't get me wrong. Sure. But in the end, I press takes you so far and then you can also struggle to put food on the table just with press. Yeah, of course. I think for me anyway, probably the last 18 months, travelling to America and hearing people when you tell them what you do, that they know the brand, Yeah. for me has been a real eye-opener because you're actually seeing the end user that says, oh, I've actually got that in my shower. Or mm. actually, Belle, my little cousin stayed at an Airbnb in Amsterdam. Yeah. And they had all our products in the shower. That's surreal. Yeah. So that was, things like that have been pretty amazing. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I, I truly value all the press that we've got. It's It's been wonderful. And we've been very, very lucky. I mean, even the stuff in the UK. Mm. Um, we've with been. That BBC interview yeah. with. How many? 360. 330 mil. 330 million what? people. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what? Yeah, so that was on um, BBC I'll Business never forget that as Daily. David was going on and was it terrified. was live. It was a sure. live Understandable. Interview. And they said, and they said, don't worry, there's only 330 people listening live. And I saw David's face. Oh, I was, that yeah. was. Yeah, so that was that. When was that? That was just before. Just the before pandemic. COVID. Yeah, that yeah. was I think I think Feb of um, 20... 2020. 2020. Wow. 2020? Yeah, I 2020. So. Yeah, anyway, then yeah, just I before mean, the pandemic. Prob- probably good timing to yeah. yeah. have that many people hear about the brand before no one can <laughs> go out of their hair time. Yeah. True. So that was um that was amazing. Um all of that growth at the early point. Um I, I yeah, I don't think we're ready for it. No. Definitely not. But how could you be? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that amount of growth in that amount of time. How many countries is Mr. Smith stocked in now? We've, we're in, I think, 10 to 12. Say, We've yeah. actually I've got, got 12 a, written down with a yeah. question mark next to it. So. I, I think you're probably on the money there. Excellent. I always unders. Um, but we saw we've not taken the foot off, but we've sort of parked that expansion a little bit mm. um, because we've really focused on the North American market of like yeah. – because we've realised that we can, I mean, we've grown so quick, both overhead, like staff count, warehouses, all of that. But you can only grow so much before yeah. you hit that point where you mentally just there's only so much you can take on. Of course. So we'd rather do what we're doing now right as opposed mm. trying to be something for absolutely everyone in the world. The I, I just think that's wise given the majority of that expansion took place, if research serves me, 2017. Like that's when you grew in pretty much all of those markets. Mm. 
what were some of the lessons that you took from that time when expansion was just in full throttle that you found helped and then perhaps some of the challenges? I think everything comes at a cost. If you want to grow, you want to increase your revenue, you want to increase your overheads, something's going to give at some point. Yeah. Um, you, you can't I, – I don't think you can have a balanced life and try to expand at that rate. Yeah. Unless, you know, you've done it before and you know all the pitfalls. I just don't think that's feasible. Um, I think we've been really naive with a lot of things. Oh, oh, that like so naive time. and it's like, oh, because – this is the first time for both of us. But I think what we have learned is we're direct to market in the US, which is fantastic. Mm. So we've learned that um, no one can, we do it, um, not no one can do it, but we're now throughout the US market, we're doing it the way we want to do it. So we're represented the way we want to be represented. And we've, control. and we've got that control. And both David and I are a little bit of control freaks, a little bit. Um, I think so, that's sort of how you've got to yeah. run a brand when yeah. it's yours. So I think that that was one thing just um, and also just having the right people supporting you. We've got a really good team in America. We've got a great team here as well. Yeah, we've been really lucky. And, yeah. And our salon partners as well throughout the world, it's been good because a lot of the people that came on at a really early point are still with the brand. Love so that. So whilst they, I suppose, retail our brand, they're very much friends. Yeah. So yeah. we can get some direct feedback, good, That's bad, so indifferent, good. which is super important because everyone will slap you on the back and tell you you're doing a great job. <laughs> but you actually want that bad feedback just mm. as much. As long as, it, as long as it's got reason and ration behind it, yeah. you'd rather that every day of the week because you can make improvements based on that. Someone said to me, I've forgotten who it was, but when you're looking at online reviews, she was saying the if it's out of five stars, she said the three-star ones are the most valuable because the one star you might get someone who just this yeah. is shit and then you'll get the five stars are obviously going to be glowing but it's the three stars that are the people are saying I liked this about it I would change this 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 like those are the thoughtful ones oh yeah it's the same sort of thing it's that feedback yep. where it's I liked this however yeah these are the tweaks it's actually yeah. a great point that is a good point and find out who said that to me so I can good credit point. them I like appropriately that. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. look into that when we get back yeah same. That's a good one. Mm. You can have that one for free. Frida, having worked all over the world and obviously the brand being stocked in so many countries, mm -hmm. from a trend perspective, how have you seen people's approach to hair sort of shift from region to region? Anything that you see here in Australia that is perhaps different from what you see in the US or vice versa? I definitely see a different standard. Okay. Everywhere I go, yeah, um, that is for sure. And I see, um, I think now we're going back to more classic, like what I'm seeing on the catwalk. And I always say to everyone, people say, um, you know, if I'm visiting salons and I know I'd say most of our salons worldwide, they say, you know, what relevance does the catwalk have to salon work? And I always say it has all, it's, it's so relevant because yeah. you're going to see you're going to see whether it's the shape, the texture, the colour, the tones. Mm. You'll see it in some some way coming into your salon. Um, so we're going to see a lot more of um, more of the classic 
So we're going to be seeing a lot more of like even roller sets, things like that. So we're going back to hair being just more beautiful and um, less... I think there's a lot of overstyling at the moment. Right. Hair's definitely overstyled and then we're calling it, you know, natural. So we'll see a lot more of that, um, sort of a lot more natural, uh, understated, um, you know, think. I always like to quote um, Alexa Chung or even like um, Jane Birkin who, yeah, I mean what a style icon. Yeah. Like Number that, just one. very understated, beautiful hair, hair looking healthy again. Um, so that's what we're going to be seeing, uh, and I've I've already been seeing that, even on the catwalk. So it's just coming back to more beauty. Mm. Jane Birkin had me cutting my own fringe for yeah. a long time in high <laughs> yep. school, so those days are behind me. David, from a sales perspective. Same sort of question. Are you? Do you see any products do really well here and not so much overseas, vice versa? Have there been any surprising trends on that mm. side of things? I mean, this probably goes without saying, but hairspray in Texas just flies. Yeah. I mean, there you go. That stuff, you can't keep it on the shelf there. No. It's probably not as big here. Our aerosols in America compared to Australia, mm. two to one. In, in wow. Ter- like in, in terms of ratios. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot bigger hair. I mean. Yeah, I, I, I just hadn't really thought about it as, yeah. God. And also in, in the States from region to region, I mean, we were in, um, I was in Minnesota, what, in March? It was minus 30. And then oh. later in the week I was in Austin, Texas, and it was 24, 25. Yeah. So you can imagine the different product sales you get between mm, those two markets at the same time. So it's so segmented there, mm. whereas Australia is pretty, for the most part, pretty flat across the board. Yeah. With, you know, New South Wales gets self-similar to Vic and mm. vice versa. Um, but America, you do have big shifts based on climate. You mentioned earlier, and I know this has been important from the get-go, the emphasis that the brand places on sustainability and local manufacturing a broad question, but can you talk me through why those things are so important to the brand and why that has been part of the ethos from day one? The beginning. Um, well, for, for Freeds and myself, uh, we didn't have a big team from the jump. Obviously, we are testing the products on ourselves. Yeah. So from the outset, there was probably 30 products a day being tried on my hair. How and nice. we uh, we wanted something clean first. That goes mm-hmm. without saying. Um, we wanted something that we would use on ourselves. And my mum from, I don't think we've ever had a microwave at home. No. We've always bought organic. Uh-huh. We've uh-huh. always shopped local butcher. Mm-hmm. Like that's always been from the jump. Yeah. Us. Um, and I suppose that just naturally transitioned into our products. So, I mean. I'll always look at where products are made. Yeah. I used to drive my husband crazy. I'd say, are these from the organic shop? Uh Always, and I'll always read the label. I'll always um, buy Australian-made, um, uh, you know, so I My guess wife's the same, like, yep. you know, at home. She's an absolute stickler for yeah. having all the different bins, making sure everything's organic, which mm-hmm. which I love. So that was very much an extension of our personal life. Yep, makes sense. Um, and obviously there were mandatories, like we always wanted to be PETA certified. Yep. Always sulfate, paraben-free. Organic ingredients, 
we want to utilize, I mean, Australia has such beautiful produce in general. Mm. We wanted to utilize that. If we have it here on our doorstep, why would we look elsewhere? And also I think our manufacturing standards here are incredible. Definitely. And the manufacturers, I mean, we work with incredible manufacturers, but I think across the board, we're very lucky here in Australia for the, like the opportunities we have mm. with, with our contract manufacturing. Collectively, you've both worked in the beauty industry for several decades Ever. now. Over the last, let's say, five to ten years, what have been some of the biggest changes that each of you have seen within the beauty industry? Salon market for sure. Yeah. What, what, um, I, what I jumped on earlier, like, I mean, in Australia, they used to be 10, 12, 20 chair salons mm -hmm. and they were Pumpy. pretty much a dime a dozen busy five days a week till 10 o'clock at night on Thursdays, all day booking Saturdays. Mm. And we're seeing very much a transition here. I think from we've caught on from the States with that single chair owner op operator yeah, and that salon suite. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing a lot more of that. But I also back in America and am seeing that whilst that change has happened, it's sort of gone full circle to the point now where people are now looking to have that team environment again right. and moving back to salons. Mm -hmm. So it's... I think standards aren't the same because of that. Because when you're working in a team environment, you feed off each other and that creativity builds. Mm. Whereas um, a lot of the younger um, hairstylists do a course and then they think that they're ready to go out and, and do it on their own. So I feel that um, the standard isn't as strong um, and I like the big salon. I mean, I, I like, I think there should be an opportunity for everyone, that people that do want to go out on their own. But I believe with that came, you know, the different um, standard in our hairdressing. Mm. You go. I was going to say the big stand, uh, the big salon is so much fun. The energy you get out the of energy, there. The energy. It's you it's feed incredible. off each other. So good. Yeah. It's, it's just different. What changes do you each think we can expect to see from the industry over the next few years? Oh, I've I seen a lot of people move away from the big conglomerate brands. Yeah, that's definitely. I don't know I if think, it's just because yeah. we're, we're hoping and we're seeing No, that. I'm seeing that too. But we've seen, regardless of if it's Mr. Smith or one of our competitors, um, we've very much seen, you know, the moving away from those multinational brands. Yeah. Um, so people do have a connection with the brand and understand the brand story and it's more transparent and, you know, it's more of that farm-to-table offering, so yeah. to speak. Um, I'm seeing a lot of that, which is amazing, especially mm. for our, uh, the smaller players in the market. It's great to see. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty pretty well summed up. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> My final question for you both, what is next for Mr Smith? I'm going to let David take this one. <laughs> I was going to let you have it. No, no. We, look, we've been working on a product launch that actually we, oh. we've been working on how long? Five years? And Are it was meant it? to launch last year. Yeah. And this was one of the ones that we took it right through to production and then pulled it last minute because it didn't uh -huh. work. Yeah. Um, so this product, um, it will launch first quarter next year. If I say the name, 
my marketing team will kill you me. You can't yeah. say the name. I don't but, even know. But, but we but love a tease yeah. on this show, so that's we've, okay. We've worked on it for five years and um, just now are we, are we finalising the SAFs and stability is complete and everything's safe and we're good to go. Um, so that, that, that's sort of it's like... It's been the biggest headache. But that's sort of like one of the, the next frontiers. Yeah. And then I suppose for the business, just the continual expansion throughout the states. Yeah. Um, we've just taken over the whole distribution throughout America, which, which my mum touched Amazing. on. Amazing. So we're spending a, a fair bit more time there. Um, and maybe I believe we might be setting up a second warehouse in America. Wow. Which, I, I, yeah, that's, that's a headache in itself. But, um, <laughs> that's kept me up all night. I can imagine. Yeah. The product that I won't name that you just put in my hair, mm-hmm. when's that launching? First of August. You August know what, well, I reckon you can talk about that. Okay. Wait, when, let me look at the calendar. When's this? This will be, oh, okay, well, we'll be in August, so Great. go for it. Okay, so <laughs> we have launched this volume powder, which I have in my hair. You do <laughs> have in your hair. And look, I'm always transparent. I'm not one of those people that uses volume powder a lot. And when we kept getting these requests, I thought, okay, let's do it. Um, and I have to say, I really love it. I really really love it. It's, um, I don't know, it's totally brushable. It doesn't, um, I was testing it on black hair on a, a gorgeous girl called Lauren um, at Mott Salon in New York and she's got dark hair, long hair and we were like all just blown away because you can rework it, you can brush it out and you can actually still sort of um, get that nice fullness and a beautiful texture. Um, I think it's going to be killer. I think it's going to do really, really well. Just like our primer was a huge mm. success, I think this is going to be, it may even outdo the primer. I don't know. I'm really excited about it. It's, um, and it has, it's taken some time because it comes in a pump pack, mm. which is different again. So um, I'm excited to see how, how it launches. That was David Rossidi's co-founder of Mr. Smith and Frida Rossidi's creative director of Mr. Smith, which you can find on Instagram at Mr. Smith Hair. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me. The Glow Journal podcast would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced. We pay our respects to elders past and present.